going to begin in Acts chapter 2 this morning, so you can be turning there. The text we're going to spend most of our time this morning, though, is 1 Corinthians, as I'm sure you might have guessed that. I've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians and plan to for a while. We're only in verses 10 through 17, so might be ready to move on by the time we get somewhere. All right, Acts chapter 2. just want to read verses 42 to 47, and then we'll pray together and then get into the scripture this morning. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, how privileged we are to approach you. And that has been made possible by the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, when we begin to set our minds and our hearts on what your Son has done for us, there is no room for boasting. There is no room for praise in and of ourselves. Father, your grace has determined before time began that we would be your children. Your grace has as through your spirit uh, spoke the gospel to us who are your children so that we, might be re- that we might receive it and respond correctly. Father, it is by your grace, through your spirit, that we even have desires of affection for you, that we can turn and love our brothers and sisters in Christ next to us, that we uh, hold fast to the faith uh, that you have given to us. It is only and by your grace. So, Father, help us to walk away this morning from your word with our eyes fixed on Christ. For when our eyes are fixed on Christ, there is no reason for boasting in and of ourselves, but only in you. And that is where we want all of our hearts to be this morning, this week, as they will be for all of eternity as those of us who truly know you. For it's in Christ's name that I come before you. Amen. We see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following, what marks to be somewhat of a spiritual utopia in the life of the New Testament church. There is a correct response to Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. They repented and they believed in Christ who is both Lord and Messiah. Their lives are changed. As you see, they had everything in common. They were providing for those in need. They, in um, verse 46, day by day, they gathered together. Now, there is no biblical text for how often we are to meet on Sunday, Wednesday, morning, evening service. But here, if we're going off of the 
biblical uh, first meeting agenda of the New Testament church. They actually met quite more often than we do. But here we have the beginning, the birth of the New Testament church. And from this small snapshot, we see a people who are united in selfless humility around praising God and favor with each other. Now, we would all be foolish to think that problems in the New Testament church did not arise as we're studying, in fact, 1 Corinthians, which is the text you go to when your church has problems to find the correct answers. Quarreling, divisions, rivalry, and strife, they're all realities in the local church. It stems from selfishness. It stems from pride. It stems from us thinking that we deserve something when we, in reality, do not when compared to the grace of our God. And because of quarreling, God our Father is dishonored. Christ the Son is disgraced. His people are demoralized and discredited. And the world is turned off and unconfirmed in belief. Fractured fellowship robs Christianity of joy in service with one another. It robs God of his glory when his church is divided. And it robs the world of the true testimony of what the gospel is supposed to put on display. And that is people from all walks of life being brought together in one faith, in one spirit, in unity, all together speaking and glorifying Christ as we see here in Acts chapter 2. This is quite the cost for simply wanting to live for oneself when we think about uh, dissension, quarreling, division, and rivaling that is often amongst our local churches that we see today. Among the Corinthian church, there were many sins. And quarreling, division, is one that Paul chooses to deal with first. Out of all the sins that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians, there, are, there is sexual morality, uh, there is abuse of spiritual gifts, there are people taking other people to court, And in all of those options that Paul could seek to go after, he puts the issue of quarreling, division, and he calls for unity as the first issue to deal with. And this is because Paul knew this, that when unity was present, there was joy in mutual Christian ministry. There was credibility to the testimony of the gospel when brothers and sisters in Christ were in unity serving God. Christ together. We read in our scripture reading of Jesus' prayer to his Father that the church would be one. His desire was the oneness that his children had experienced in Christ would begin to be infiltrated and fleshed out in the relationships within the local church. Perfect harmony seemed to dwell here in Acts chapter 2 sharing everything, rejoicing together, worshiping together, witnessing all together. And the Lord was adding to their number. I don't think that we should think that there's an insignificant connection between the fact that a church that was almost seemingly perfect unified had the most effective um, gospel testimony. I think there's a connection. there. Their unity bore great fruit from their ministry together in their witness to the world 
and in their pleasing and glorifying of God. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and see Paul's rebuke to a church that was divided. This morning, as we look at verses 10 to 17, I just want to think with you in this, this, this simple thought this morning that God is most glorified when his people live in harmony. God is most glorified when his people live in harmony. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In verses 10 to 17, we come to a little bit of a transition in the book. Paul is coming out of his thanksgiving in verses 4 through 9, and he begins the main body of his letter with an appeal. And this large, if we could zoom out and divide the book into two halves, from chapters 1 to um, 6, Paul's going to be dealing with issues that he had overheard. If you look in verse 11 of our text, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Okay, there, were, there were issues that Paul overheard, was told by um, certain people, Chloe's people, and then people later in, in chapter 16. And Paul is addressing these issues that he has been notified of. We come to chapter 7, and Paul begins to turn there, and he says, now about the issues that you wrote to me. Okay, so Paul, what he does here is he's beginning the main body of his, his letter, and he begins to address these issues that he has been notified about. Now, before we get into our text this morning, I want to make a, a little bit of a literary note in the, f- in the flow of Paul's letter. If you pick up at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, notice how Paul ends his thanksgiving. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, often when Paul begins a letter and he has a Thanksgiving section, he will often drop hints about what he is going to later talk about in the letter and address. We looked last Sunday night, for those of you who were here, Paul was dropping hints in verse 5 that in every way you were enriched in him in in all speech and all knowledge. These were most likely referring to spiritual gifts that Paul is going to deal in length in chapters 12 through 14 of the letter. But notice, if Paul is continually dropping hints about what he is about to discuss, notice what he does in verse 9. I think this is what he's doing. God is faithful 
by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the very next verse he begins with, I appeal to you to put division to an end. Right? You have, this is who you have been called to, believers, brothers and sisters. You have been called to a fellowship. Inside the local body of Christ are people who are in service to Christ for the edification of one another and for the advancement of his, God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. This is what we have been bound together to do. And there were currently divisions in this church. So Paul begins here in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. I want to split up our study this morning just into sort of a roadmap as to look at these verses. We'll look at the appeal in verses 10 and 11. We'll look at the issue at hand in verse 12. And finally, we will look at Paul's response to, to this issue. So pick up in, in, in verse 10. Paul begins here with a request. Depending on the translation that you have in front of you, it might be urge, it might be encourage, it might be beseech. But Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers. That carries with it not an idea of necessarily Paul is coming and, and dropping the hammer on these individuals, but it holds with it the idea that, that Paul is actually coming alongside these Corinthian believers in love. He's not coming down with a club, but he's coming alongside with great concern for them. He calls them brothers. He'll do that later in, in verse 11. And this is not foreign to us. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Right? Later in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, I beseech you, I urge you. In, in Philemon, you could flip there if you care to or, or tap, tap there. We pick, up this, we pick up this idea that Paul is actually coming to these believers in love. Philemon, there's no chapter, so Philemon 8, okay? He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to, here's the word, appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. So Paul comes alongside in love, to correct this church that is indeed out of line. However, we see also not just the side of love that Paul addresses this church, but we see the side of business. Notice what Paul does. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name or by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, to call on someone in someone else's name is to say, all that Christ is and all that he desires and wills, that is who I am coming before you right now and asking you to set straight what has been undone. Paul's not asking for a favor here. He's not asking them to simply do something for him, to make him look good. But he comes to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's appealing to them with apostolic authority on behalf of Jesus Christ, which he appeals to at the beginning of the letter. Paul called by the will of God. This is who he is coming to these people. If you've ever uh, been in a, a situation where you might have uh, needed to watch your younger siblings, right, and things might be getting out of hand, right, your, your parents are gone, they told the oldest sibling to make sure while I'm gone, you, you keep things straight, right? 
and things begin to get out of hand, and the older sibling tries to, you know, you know, wield the rod of, I don't know, whatever authority they have, right? And these younger siblings are not listening to the older sibling, right? And what does that sibling often do? You need to do so-and-so because mom or dad said it. Right? And then hopefully if the child has any fear or respect of the parents, the, the child sits up a little straighter, right? There's an appeal to and a greater authority and it often comes out with, oh, okay, I need to sit up straight. I need to, I need to listen a little bit better here. I think it was Paul is, is doing here that when he mentions the name of the Lord, we can feel the seriousness that Paul addresses the church with. On behalf of Christ, Paul is addressing this issue of what we'll see in a second, division, quarreling. Their response to Paul here in this verse would actually be their response to Christ. And that's true of us as well, right? For the final authority for all of us as followers of Christ is not Paul or Peter or John or Matthew or Mark. It's Christ, our master. Paul says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord. He is Lord. He rules our desires. He rules our thoughts. He rules our actions. As followers of his, whatever he desires, that is what we must do. And we do it gladly, because without God's grace, we would not be able to. Notice what Paul appeals to them to do. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Quite literally, means all of you say the same thing. He picks up this positive, negative, positive pattern when he commands them to do this. Notice he says, appeal to you that you all say the same thing, positive, that there be no divisions among you, negative, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So Paul's calling these believers here to say the same thing, think the same way, and act the same way. This idea of agreement or being of the same mind or being of the same judgment has the idea of of setting something straight that has been broken. I don't know if you guys have ever broken a bone before and had to have it reset. Luckily, my spiral fracture in my leg when I was younger, I didn't have to get it reset. But this idea of something has gone awry, something has been broken, and it needs to be brought back together. This This is Paul's appeal here. Right? It, it almost carries with it the idea of, I want you to refurbish what has been lost. Right? I remember in high school, my school was coming out with the opportunity to have our textbooks on, on iPads. My parents didn't want to buy a brand new one, so we bought a refurbished one. Right? One that had not actually, someone had bought it, didn't work, they returned it. The geek squad or whoever did that, they brought it back to life. Okay? They made right what had been lost. This is what Paul is, is, is calling these believers to do here. There is an issue, and he wants it to be addressed. Paul is calling these believers to live in harmony, live in unity, say the same thing as, have the same thoughts processes, have the same intentions and goals and purposes. Negatively, Paul says, and that there be no division among you. Paul urges that there be no divisions. The idea, our, where we get our word schism, 
okay? The idea of there is different forms being, different camps being created over certain issues of opinion or, or thinking or, or belief. And Paul begins to reflect this actual issue that's going on later in verse 12. But this idea of division, a few examples would be in, in John chapter 7, John chapter 9 and John chapter 10, when, when Jesus would, would teach, and there was a great divide over his crowd of people that he was teaching. Right? There was certain people who were kind of new, neutral. Okay, you can't actually be neutral. You're either rejecting or you're, you're, you're accepting Christ. Right? But there were some who had somewhat of a formulated opinion about Jesus, and then there were others who had a different opinion. Right? This, is, I, this is the idea that Paul speaks here of division. I think that when Paul begins to get into verse 12 here, what I mean is that each one of you guys says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, we'll touch on in a second. But I don't think that we need to necessarily think that there are these formed groups or parties, but actually divided opinions and divided agendas that were beginning to cause a rift, begin to pit certain leaders of the church against the other which developed into jealousy, which developed into quarrels. And because of this, Paul encouraged them literally to set straight what has been lost. What is, where does Paul hear of this? Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. I don't really know who Chloe necessarily is, but what we can conclude is Paul doesn't really give an explanation of who she is, so the audience must have understood and known well who Chloe was. Secondly, uh, Paul obviously trusted Chloe enough to take what she said as true and to correct what was going on in the church, and that indeed was quarreling. What Paul seeks to do here, and where we should take note of this, because Paul is not speaking to the church universal. Paul is not talking to all believers who ever lived in Corinth. They need to get along. But what he is, he is addressing the local church. So for us as individuals, when we read this, is it is good for us to evaluate the temperature of our local church. Wherever there have been tears or rifts in fellowship, believers must strive to see them mended. And this does not mean uniformity. Okay? We're not all going to think the same thing about everything. We're not all going to have the same personality or the same likes and dislikes that don't have to do anything with the truth of God's word. They're going to be Michigan, Michigan fans. There's going to be state fans. I say that a little tongue-in-cheek. Okay? We're at mat- with th- things that matter, quite frankly, nothing at all. Paul's intent here is not uniformity. Rather, these believers are to, like a choir singing from all the same page of music, while they might be singing different parts on the same page. And what we have here is four different parts being directed by one individual to to create something that is harmonious and beautiful. And this is the idea of what Paul is seeking to Say, this is where you guys got off track. 
and he wants you, and he wants us, wants these Corinthian believers to bring it back. What does that look like for you and I to walk in harmony, to say the same thing as, to think the same way, to have the same purpose or to have the same judgments? This is what it means. It's that you and I, we approach our walk with Christ with a humility of mind so that we are all willing to be submissive to one thing. There is really only one way for true unity, for true harmony to actually exist within the walls of a local church. There's only one way for there to be oneness in thinking. That we're all committed to the same standard of truth. We come with the spirit of unity that says, whatever the word of God says, that is where I will submit myself. When a group of individuals who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ have a spirit of, we will do whatever the scripture calls us to do, it is then where we can truly agree, be of the same mind, be of the same judgment. And this is accomplished by submission to the local church's leadership, which is exactly what was, had gone awry in Corinth. And this is what Paul seeks to do later in his letter. So here's the appeal to agree. Be of the same mind. Be of the same decision or be of the same judgment. But notice the issue. What exactly? How had, this, how had these divisions, how had this quarreling... What was the nature of what was going on? Look at verse 12. He says, I've, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What is this quarreling? He says, Well, what I mean is, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul lays out for us just exactly what he heard from Chloe's people. Now, it's really tough to say. Just exa- I'm going to be completely honest. All the commentators disagree. All right, I, don't worry. I looked at them all. Okay? It is very difficult to understand just exactly what is going on in, in this, this verse when Paul says, some of you are saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, who is Peter, or and we have this group thrown in there, I'm of Christ. You think they would win the day, right? Like, that, that seems to be the trump card, right? Uh, but, but it's not, okay? Um, what is known is not much at all about these, these groups. Uh, but there are quarrelings, there are divisions, and they are, generating, they are generated in the names of these various leaders. Now, there's really no evidence in the text anywhere in the book of, that these leaders were responsible for creating these divisions. Um, this is obviously not true of Paul, because Paul was currently away from these people uh, while he's penning this. This is definitely, Christ definitely couldn't be accused of the one creating these groups because he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, Apollos, um, Paul doesn't seem to have any issue with Apollos as a teacher because he actually commends him and says, he's actually just watered what I've sown later in chapter 3. We're, we're fellow laborers. Paul will either, enc- either go on to encourage Apollos to go back to Corinth. So it doesn't seem that, um, that Paul or Christ or Apollos is actually responsible 
for the ones actually being divided and causing these division in the church. Again, I'll say it, it is quite difficult to understand the different issues of division. And I'm quite sure, just as I did, you have many questions. Are these theological differences between the parties? Okay. Um, was there really a Christ group? Uh, that's a question I had. Uh, what happened after Paul left Corinth seems to be a lot, a lot to explain there. Um, but I don't think these are necessarily theological differences. And here's why. Um, he never corrects Apollos' teaching in the book. Um, so it doesn't seem like it would be quabbles or division over theological issues. And we know, okay, if you read the New Testament, that Paul never backs down from an opportunity to stick it to someone who has gone off when they've gone off the rails with the gospel, right? Uh, he sticks it to Peter in Galatians 2, right, when he's trying to be a Jew and a Gentile, right? He sticks it to him. And what's interesting is when you have issues of when you have gospel issues where people are teaching uh, salvation by works, Paul actually tells them, create a faction, create a division, separate yourself. There is true gospel separation. And so how Paul addresses the issue of division is really what we want to tap into. It's, and, I, and, I, and I'm convinced that it's not necessarily an issue of theological differences as much so as it was these believers here wanting to attach themselves to individual leaders for the gain of their own social status. The motivation as to why these individuals want to connect themselves to Paul, connect themselves to Apollos, connect themselves to Peter, or, or to Christ, this is the reason that Paul gets into and we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because to live in Corinth, we're going to have to use our, not imagination, but we're going to need to understand the cultural temperature of the day. These divisions or these groups seemingly that these individuals are seeking to attach themselves to these certain leaders, they stemmed from mimicking the secular elitist educational model. What, what is that? Okay, here's what was going on in the day. It was very common for, well, I'll step back and say this first. The desire to be wise, the desire to be able to rhetorically get into a debate and reason with logic and win arguments and have wisdom and to be seen as this wise sage on top of the hill, this is what it meant to be in the day and age to live in, in Corinth. And so this, people would often attach themselves to certain leaders or teachers who were considered wise in that day. And all of this, the leader and all of his little pupils or those who sat under him, they would receive somewhat of a social status from whichever leader that they would attach themselves to. And so what you have is you begin to have this competitive spirit well up within individuals of the day. Well, well I follow Paulus. <laughs> which in Acts chapter 18, he actually is considered a very uh, wise and eloquent speaker. It actually says that of him in Acts chapter 18. Right, well, well, okay, well, you're of Apollos. Well, I'm of Paul, right? And he actually founded this church, so what do you have to say to that, right? And so what it, be, what it does is it, as you begin to attach yourselves to these individuals, you begin to see this, this spirit of competitiveness 
The spirit of, well, I'm going to attach myself to this leader because I, I know that I'll gain this social status with this individual. And these teachers or these orators who could reason with logic and rhetoric, they were of a high social status. They attracted large public followings. And it was in that day, the thing to do was to attach yourself to one of these great leaders. And apparently, these Corinthian Christians picked up on this secular style of relating to their leaders, and it resulted in disastrous things. What these people were doing is they were actually viewing Christianity as different schools of wisdom so that each one would associate themselves to a different famous teacher for the, pers- for the, for the purpose of personal status. And in their own attempt to rise above those boasting in mere man, they've actually fallen into their own band of spiritual elitism. I am of Phil and the teacher. And at the end of the day, what that truly does is that makes no believer better than another. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4. Now here I'll say, Paul, he might almost lay the club down. First Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? <laughs> Pause there. This was the very goal of their attaching themselves to a leader, was to look different and look better than other individuals. And Paul says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Well, Paul is speaking here, and remember, this church is very gifted. They had spiritual gifts of wisdom, prophecy, teaching. Paul will address this. But Paul steps back and he says, Who gave you your gifts? To which the answer is, Well, it's God. And if that truly is from God, then why are you going around boasting as if you conjured this thing up in and of yourself? I think it's helpful for us here to and apply this truth to our lives is while we might not be attaching ourselves to myself or Mike or Joey, right? Okay. What do we, myself, what do you, what do you glory in? That group of people who said, I am of Christ. Seemingly the trump card, right? Like, I don't need to submit to any leader. I submit to Christ. I think this idea of saying, well, no, I don't submit to any leader, but I submit to Christ, I think it still can be easily said with the same amount of pride as the other groups. What do you and I glory in? We might say that we can only boast in the cross, in the work of Jesus Christ. But what do you and I truly glory in. I mean, whatever fills your conversations. 
with other people, you'll learn pretty quickly what you glory in. A, a bright mind, a title, your job, your abilities. Whatever you have that you glory in, who gave that to you? If God had not given it to you, then you would not have it. You and I will not be able to serve Jesus faithfully until we rid ourselves of worldly aspirations and the desire for individual distinct ability like these people were seeking after. If you notice in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12, there's I, I do this, I follow this, I follow that, I follow Christ, I follow Paulus. This is not a competition in a spirit of pride. We have been brought into the body of Christ to serve Christ and Christ alone and to call others to come to Christ. Not to Paul. Not to Apollos. And our only desire is not to glory in ourselves, but to please the one who has saved us. Well, notice Paul's response lastly in the last four verses. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Notice how Paul answers this issue of division. His answer begins with three questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, the first question is a little difficult to understand. But the second one, and the third one, was Paul crucified for you, Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Those second and third questions, they're rhetorical. But in the original language, Paul, he puts a negated word in there, which tells us that the the obvious answer to the response is no. I don't know if you've ever, you can remember back in a time when you did something foolish, and in the moment, your parents would ask you a couple of, you know, rhetorical questions to kind of, bring to light how foolish you had been, right? It's like, yeah, what? I remember I had a really bad habit of breaking windows when I was younger. Um, you know, if that's my dad about all the ones I broke. He, I think he kept track, but I didn't. I remember there was one scenario where we were getting ready to leave on one of, a, one of our mission trips that our church would do, and I was in the basement, and we had egress windows in our basement, and I thought it would be a good idea to play tennis against the wall down in my basement, okay? So I'm just, you know, right? So I end up sending the tennis ball through the window, and this was, this was at four or five, five yeah, four or fifth window I had broken. And, you know, in that moment, my dad comes down there and asks me something of a question. Were you trying to break it? And it, it's like everyone would answer, well, no, I wasn't trying to break the window, okay? But what my dad was trying to do there was, do you see... Do you know how foolish that was? Why would you, do you understand 
how, how, how foolish that was to play tennis in the basement with a window right, 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 in, right in direct fire. How Paul is seeking to get across to these believers is the, the division that is going on in this church is he's saying, is Christ divided? In other words, that last phrase, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ do you realize what you're doing here, this group, whoever you are? You are bringing the sovereign Lord, the one who we should all be following, and you're bringing him down on par with Paul, with Apollos, with Cephas. Is Christ divided? Paul's saying that is absurd. Can Christ be made a leader of a party in the same breath as these others? The next question. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? These questions are obviously no. To be baptized in the name of someone was an outward representation of I am changing my allegiance to, for believers, it's no longer going to myself, but it's going to Christ. Paul's point here is to say that Christ is not divided. Neither should his body be. We have all been saved by the death of Jesus Christ. We have all been baptized into one name, Father, Son, and Spirit. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Cephas. Some in Corinth may have thought it a personal advantage to them if whoever baptized them, they could actually attach themselves to it. This is why Paul here says, I thank my God that I actually baptized only like two of you, right? So that I'm kind of, don't have to be that one guy's name that everybody's attaching themselves to. He says, I I thank my God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say, oh, I was baptized in Paul's name. It's interesting in verse 16, if you have parentheses there around that verse, it's like a little, it's like a little authorial note. He says, well, I, I guess I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I really don't know whether I baptized anyone else. I think what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, it really doesn't matter who baptized you. You're not being baptized into your leader's name. Your leader, whichever one you choose, did not die for your sins. To be found in Christ is the most important He says, that's why I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. The level of importance of who Paul remembers he baptized falls very low on the totem pole. What is so important here and what Paul is seeking to show them that when you get off in trying to seek after a specific leader for the social status or for the boasting in and of yourselves, you have begun to divide the body of Christ. This is why Paul says in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to call people to Christ, to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be emptied. Paul's solution to this problem of division is to do what? It's to refer back to the gospel itself. When you and I focus our attention on Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, the one in whom we have been baptized into and seek to follow him rather than fill in the blank. 
said leader, then unity among God's people can result. Ephesians 4, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. When divisions or quarreling arise in local churches, frequently the actual underlying issue is when men and women have actually lost sight of Jesus Christ and their identity in him. They have made their role as God's child on earth somehow about them, which is a perfect storm for division and quarreling to flourish. Well, Paul finishes here in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There is, an, there is a seen issue of preaching the gospel message with wisdom and eloquence. Now, I don't think that Paul is pushing back against, no, I want to formulate my presentation of the gospel so that I can be persuasive. Right? With the intent of truly seeing this sinner that I'm trying to share the truth of Christ with, I want to see them come to faith in Christ. So I want to explain the gospel in such a way that would be captivating, so they might see themselves for who they truly are and believe in Christ for, he, for who he truly is. But when people begin to take the message of Christ, teach it as a leader so that others might see how wise they are, See how eloquent they are. So that might, they might be lifted up in social status to say, look at me. That completely defeats the purpose of the message that we share. Right? Because the message of Jesus Christ is look to no man, look to Christ. Paul, Paul's point is that the value, the values surrounding this manipulative rhetoric of trying to use the gospel to sort of gain some sort of social status, it is in direct contradiction to the message of a crucified Christ. And that is what Paul's going to go into in chapter, later in chapter 1, chapter 2, all the way up until chapter 4. To argue this, the follower of Christ is not to live for his own glory. That is the message of Christ but only for the glory of God and, and, and tampering with not only the message, but tampering with who you and I are ultimately supposed to be submitted to. That's not any human leader, but to Christ and Christ alone. It strips us of our effective witness to unbelievers because it's, it's sending a message that we don't care about the glory of God or the glory of Christ, but we are consumed with our own glory a vital question that we need to ask ourselves, just coming from verse 17, is whether we still believe that speaking the simple gospel message has its force that it always has. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is no name under heaven other than the name of Jesus Christ, whereby all should be saved. Are we truly persuaded that the presentation of the gospel of Jesus has with it its own power to convert, to change people? Not our own. God is most glorified 
when his people live in harmony. As we close this morning, may we be reminded that in Christ we have the only reason to boast. Nothing in ourselves. May the Lord help us this week as we seek to serve one another with the, with the disposition of humility, recognizing that all we have in God is because of his grace. Amen. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this morning. Help us as we seek to understand just the underlying heart issues that take place when there is division, when there is quarreling amongst us as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that we would come back and set our eyes on Christ, for in him and him alone are we saved. In him and him alone do we serve. So Father, help us to link arms one with another, to serve Christ so that you might be glorified and so that our community around us might see the true representation of what it means to follow you. For it's in your name that I ask. Amen.